This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 363. Where did the Earth's water come from? Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. And we are at this point, at the time that we are recording, we do not know what happened with the SpaceX launch and if it's going to land on a uh, floating platform in the ocean. But by the time you listen to it, you will know if it happened. So uh, hooray or um, too bad. We're sorry. Yeah, we're sorry. And maybe next time. But awesome technology attempt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also, we should get a little housekeeping in order, which is that you should... Uh, subscribe to the astron- the newly formed Astronomy Cast YouTube channel. So if you want to watch the full videos, you want to see the preamble where we uh, uh, prepare for the show uh, and then record the show live and then we stick around afterwards and we answer questions from users, uh, then you're probably going to want to watch that. You can just go to... Is it Astronomy Cast? No, we don't have that yet. So Mm. what you want to do is bounce off of our Google Plus page or look at our Twitter feed or just look at any of the videos that are embedded on Astronomy Cast. I'll make sure the link is all over on Astronomy Cast. So the more subscribers we get, the more likely we are for YouTube to actually give us that pretty URL that we so desperately desire. I'm sure we have it somewhere in our collection. I'm sure we've registered it. I, I'm I'm sure we own it somehow. But anyway, it, it's there. They yeah. Google you baffle us. We love you. You baffle <laughs> right. us. Uh, but yeah, go go follow your YouTube link to Astronomy Cast and keep up with all of the live raw. Preston hasn't made me sound more intelligent. We love you, Preston. Shows that are out there and uh, get all of the outtakes before they're outtakes. Awesome. All right, let's get on with the show. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So where on Earth did our water come from? Well, obviously not from Earth, of course, but from space. But did it come from comets? Or did the water form naturally right here in the solar system and the Earth just scooped it up? And this is just to sort of give a little preamble in the show, uh, which is that we often are asked to update people on some science. And and we're surprised how most of the changes are fairly, I guess, uh, incremental changes in the science. And it's not like some big thing that's been really super different now. But uh, thanks to the Rosetta mission and the landing and some of the analysis of Comet 67P, 
uh, we may have a little bit of an update to to where Earth's water came from. So so let's kind of go back and and set the stage here. Where did the Earth's water come from? And why is this even a question that I think we want to <laughs> ask? Right. Well, let's start with why. Why? Why are we asking? Yeah. Why are and, we asking and, this question? Is it obvious? So, the sky. Yeah, no, not so much. Um, so, so the reason that we have to ask this is in the early days of our solar system, there was this water line and the asteroid Vesta is on the dry side of the water line. The asteroid Ceres is on the wet side of the water line. And the line, if you hadn't already guessed, passes right through at the distance of the asteroid belt. And I've got a sorry, I've got a great analogy for the for the water line, which is I don't know if you guys get this, but we get frost here in Canada and the sun will shine and you'll get shadows of like rooftops and stuff and you will get frost. And then the shadow of the sun as it moves, there's no frost. And it is the frost line in the in the solar system. And it is if you've ever seen that, that's what's going on. The sun is like literally at one point it is it is making the water go away. And the other part, the water is able to stay frozen. And and the issue here is if you were inside of the water line, the sun was just blasting you a little too hot to hold on to your volatiles. So anything that likes to become gaseous and highly energetic when heated went away. And so the early Earth, well inside that water line, was a molten, hot, nasty, awful, but volatile-free kind of place to be, or at least largely volatile-free. And and so any water that formed with the planet Earth that was on the surface, it went away during the early solar system. The, the sun just baked us. So that raises the question of we are now a water-covered world, and that water had to come from somewhere. And the story that we've been using for a long time is it came by comet. Comets bombarded the planet. They made the oceans. They melted and made water. And, and that was a happy story. It was simplistic. It was easy. We make comets in our lab classes. Nicole makes prettier ones than I do. And um, they melt into water and carbon dioxide. And, and this is stuff the Earth has. Right. And I guess history has been a you know, Time has been around for a long time. We've got 4.5 billion years of, of history with the Earth. Although comets are fairly rare, we, you know, if you add them all up over billions of years, you would get a significant amount of water and a lot of destruction. Right. And, and so we, we like to have data to back up our theories because theories without data are just sort of fairy tales that may or may not be true and we're not sure. And unfortunately, the data here is being confusing. So, 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 sorry. Just one thing. So, like the one theory is the comets. What, what are alternative theories for where that water could have come from? I well, it had to literally fall out of the sky, but not out of our sky, like out of space onto the planet Earth from somewhere. So, someplace not Earth. Right. Water originated. That someplace came to Earth and crashed onto Earth. So that kind of means asteroids are really the only other option. But isn't there another theory just that the water formed in situ, that it was like essentially somehow water molecules floating around in space and the Earth just kind of crashed into them? Not so much. You, you can't really explain all the water that's on Earth one molecule at a time. 
Okay. So the the other theory that's out there that doesn't seem to quite ring true is that there could have been reserves of water deep inside the earth that didn't get baked out by the sun and have since migrated towards the surface. Um, again, can't seem to come up with it in large enough amounts to account for our atmosphere, our oceans and everything else. There is reserves of water deep inside the earth, but um, yeah, that that theory doesn't seem to quite as we've written it match reality right now. So so like the earth could have protected the water from the blasting like the earth the water could have formed with the earth but then the earth could have protected the water from the blasting radiation from the sun and then it might have somehow percolated up to the surface and and yeah so so a better way to think of it is when the earth formed um it was this motley mix of different compositions of materials and there was water scattered throughout all depths of the early planet earth but the stuff that was too close to the surface got baked out and there were reserves deep inside that the sunlight wasn't able to bake out. So if if you think about baking things in a kiln, if you don't bake them long enough, you end up with uh, incomplete ceramic. Um, this is why it's easier to have hollow objects than solid objects. The solid objects, you always end up with pockets inside, which leads to broken ceramics eventually. Right. Okay. Uh, and so, and so I guess where, so at this point, everyone was pretty certain it was comets, but then what was what was the thing that uh, Rosetta discovered at uh, at 67P? Well, it and it wasn't just Rosetta. Rosetta's just the most recent issue. So so with Rosetta, there there's a spectrometer on board that is capable of analyzing the composition of stuff. Um, so it it can go through, it can scoop up, and the instrument is called Rosina, which is the Rosetta Orbiter Spectrometer for Ion and Neutral Analysis. Um, and and this particular instrument is able to capture ions, uh, capture atoms, molecules floating around near the comet that came from the comet, and analyze their composition. And what it did was it analyzed the composition to see what the ratio in the water of normal uh, H2O to heavy water, which is deuterium, it, it has an extra neutron, what the ratio of regular water to deuterium was to compare that ratio to the ratio here on Earth. So here on Earth, it's about one in every 10,000 water molecules in your average seawater is heavy water. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on if you like mysteries or you like solutions, the amount of heavy water found in the sample uh, from CP, 67CP, or CG rather, it had way, way too much heavy water to match the Earth's atmosphere. But this is a single measurement. Right. On now, a single comet. It's a single measurement on a single comet, and and this is the third comet we've made this sort of a sample for. So we're now looking at the situation where comet 103P Hartley 2 has a deuterium to hydrogen ratio that perfectly matches the planet Earth. Um, so there we have one comet from the Oort cloud that matches 
we now have uh, 67 PCG, which totally doesn't match. And we've also sampled a, a comet that came from the Oort cloud, and it totally didn't match. So having looked now at three comets with not that much data from the three comets, we're sort of left scratching our head. But the thing is, heavy water and regular water are physically very different. And it's possible that this is simply a sampling problem, that with Comet Hartley 2, um, with its sample, it was much more active than than um, CP67. Uh, I'm going to totally 67P. Yeah, 67PCG. Um, it, it, it was much more active when that sample was taken than 67PCG uh, currently is. So there's a chance that if you have a fully engaged, fully active, you are getting a representative sample comet detection, that you'll get this it matches ratio. Whereas this the comet's just waking up, we're taking the first sample off the surface. There's there's a chance that we're still dealing with differentiated material where the heavy water um, is what melted first. And right. we don't know. And and this is where you have to start looking at the differences between heavy water and regular water. And so do we, I mean, are we fairly certain that 67P, this is its first trip into the inner solar system? We're pretty sure, but we can't be completely sure. Right, right. And so, I mean, you can get these long period comets and they may take, say, a million years to make their orbit around. But that would be an Oort cloud object. This is a Kuiper belt object. But that's not to say that um, we didn't just miss the sucker in the last pass. Right. So, uh, so I guess you can, and then you can say, so, you know, if the sun has somehow been acting on the surface of the, of the comet, what impact has that had? Has that been somehow, uh, breaking down the ratio between water and and heavy water? So these are all a million questions, but you can, you know, you can probably imagine again, the way our stories worked on universe today over the last couple of years, you know, um, Comet Hartley confirms Earth's water came from comets, right? Comet Rosetta, right. you know, uh, Rosetta's comet can, you know, throws question into where Earth's water came from. It's this is how science works, and and it it's definitely um, a confusing tale to look at, and it it definitely starts to get at the frustration of not fully understanding how these objects formed in the past. So we do have these large blocky objects. And the thing about looking at uh, 67PCG is this is some sort of a modified shape. It is either contact binary, it is two objects that are loosely held together, it is something happened that made it the shape of a rubber duck. Um, Weirdly rotating rubber ducks probably don't form naturally in the early solar system. And so when we look at it, we have to wonder how much heating went with that. And the thing about heavy water is it... um, thaws at a warmer temperature 
than or it doesn't thaw it uh, rather freezes at a warmer temperature than regular water does regular water you have to get all the way down to zero celsius before you start getting ice cubes heavy water with the deuterium you just have to get down to um, 3.82 degrees celsius which is about 39 degrees fahrenheit and at that warmer temperature it will begin to freeze one of the interesting facets about water is it forms a crystalline structure as it freezes and so ice cubes rise to the surface so you have the heavy water has a freezing point that will cause it to freeze at a warmer temperature ice rises to the surface than light water and we know nothing about the processes which would have formed the comet nothing so it's it's possible that based on melting and freezing histories that you could end up with differentiation between where the heavy water is and where the light water is you have organics forming on the surface all of this creates a complex picture where it is utterly reasonable to think well that blast of material we got came from a differentiated section of the comet now i mean this isn't the first icy object of you know comets aren't the first icy objects that we've been able to take a look at we've got cassini that's evaluating uh the saturnian system a lot of those moons are icy and then of course there's the dawn mission which is going to be approaching which is approaching Ceres. Ceres right now. So so what's going to happen there? Well, when we get to Ceres, there's this question of, does Ceres have water geysers? There have been some observations made at far too great a distance, otherwise known as from Earth, that hint if you overprocess them enough that there could be, could be, maybe, 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 overprocess the image enough, uh, water geysers on Ceres. And if that's the case, then we have the opportunity to start getting a sense of how much water may be uh, inherent in these asteroids that are at a greater distance. And the amount of water that asteroids have today is likely to be a lot less than they had in the past. So if we start finding asteroids that have a fair amount of water today, and we know that like the planet Earth, the asteroids experienced a warmer past, um, well, it could be that in the past, during the Great Heavy Bombardment, where we were getting hit with asteroids as well as comets, it could be that some of those asteroids, maybe they're responsible for bringing water. We just don't know. I mean, we're really starting to blur that line between what is an asteroid and what is a comet. That there are asteroids with very comet-like attributes and there are comets with very asteroid-like attributes. We've had asteroids sporting tails. Uh, and even when you look at 67P, it looks like an asteroid. It doesn't. Well, it's 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 very frozen at the moment. It's very frozen. It's it's very frozen, and it's also covered in dust. Yeah. And it just looks and, very rocky. And this was one of those things that I actually got into a conversation with Jonathan McDowell, and uh, he and I kind of went down the Google rabbit hole and. Um, trying to figure out what the International Astronomical Union uses to define uh, minor planet, asteroid, comet, minor body, small body. Well, there's the, the Center for Minor Planets, and that appears to take into account comets and asteroids 
And it appears that with the nomenclature, both types of objects do have their own definitions, but it's, it's definitely becoming um, systematically more difficult to differentiate between the two types of objects. Right. And so, I mean, I guess best case scenario, like back to the Dawn mission here, let's say that, you know, I mean, because it's going to be doing a lot of this analysis of the of the water. I mean, it, really, it's looking for water at at series. You know, what do you think would be the best case scenario for sort of what we would learn when with this mission? <laughs> best case scenario is is that spectrometers look at the water that is nicely frozen in easy to observe places and shadowed craters on the surface, and goes, huh. That is exactly what we have here on Earth. But, um, it, yeah, it's it's trying to get those sorts of detailed observations. It's a small spacecraft. It's not necessarily going to have all the instrumentation we need to completely definitively say yes. Ideally, what you want to do is go and scoop up a, a handful of dust and ice and measure it in a lab. But Ceres isn't going to get landed on this time. Right. But, I mean, amazing, like there was stardust... I mean, there has been analysis and return of samples from from a comet. So this isn't entirely impossible. Well, and and what we're actually looking forward to is OSIRIS-REx, which is going to do a sample return mission of um, the asteroid Bennu. So while the Dawn mission is is definitely making massive strides in terms of imaging and regional spectroscopy it's not going to land and grab a handful of of surface but the osiris rex mission is going to do exactly that so it's it's a slow and gradual process when nasa and esa explore our solar system they do it very incrementally um we we started out with with Mars exploration with Vikings, which just kind of landed and looked around where they landed. And then we had the Pathfinder, which was a little tiny rover dude. Then we went to uh, Curios- Then we went to Opportunity and Spirit, which were, were much more freewheeling re- explorers, but they didn't have all the instruments one might want. Now we have Curiosity. We're following a similar incremental exploration plan of the asteroids. Um, Dawn is... is just one of many different steps that we're going to be taking, and OSIRIS-REx is really the the next big step that we're going to be taking. The other thing, and I'm I'm not sure if you prepared for this, so so feel free to Google if you need to. Um, is uh, that astronomers have done a lot of analysis of of other solar systems, and one of the kind of amazing things is that that extrasolar planet researchers have also detected. Um, Oort clouds, vast clouds of water and and even ice around other solar systems, which is kind of mind bending to think that this is even possible. So, so in addition to looking just in the solar system, astronomers are also looking out into other solar systems, and they're able to you know able to see them at different phases of evolution. They can see brand new uh, solar systems that have just formed and more ancient ones. And and like, what does that tell us? 
Well, when, when we look at other solar systems, it starts to give us snapshots in understanding how solar systems form. Um, this has, in some cases, confirmed our understanding of early planets, sweep out these bands in the dusty disk of the early solar nebula. Uh, in other cases, it has left us scratching our heads because we have no clue how the super Jupiters migrate up to right next to their suns, um, but the hot ones like uh, 51 Pegasus. So, so we're in this weird situation of we're confirming parts of our understanding of how planets form. We're confirming that things like asteroid belts are normal. We're starting to find rocky worlds. We're starting to understand planets exist in places we never imagined. Really hot stars, it turns out, have them. Really tiny stars, it turns out, have them. The only stars that we can't find them at are those that don't have a lot of metals. And that makes sense because if you don't have metals, you have nothing to form planets out of. But the, the reforming part of the solar system where it goes from uh, that solar nebula to migrating its planets all over kingdom come. Um, we're, we're still very confused about how that happens. And uh, a lot of work has been done uh, here on earth. Uh, we're able to look around and say, Hey, Jupiter and Saturn were in resonance at some point in the past that led to a great rearranging of our solar system. And, Unfortunately, when it comes to the basic understanding of how does the ion ratio in different places, how does the isotopic ratio in different places vary, solar systems are faint. Uh, in order to differentiate between deuterium and uh, regular water, H2O versus D2O, um, you need to have giant spectrographs on giant telescopes. And you need systems brighter than what we've been able to see so far if you want to get images that show what the ratio is snuggled up next to the star versus further out. We don't have the technology yet. But I think this, I mean, I know this solar system rearranging fascinates and haunts your dreams. Um, <laughs> and, and Other things haunt yeah. my dreams, but it does fascinate. Yeah, but this is just this idea, right, that how on how could you possibly get a, an object as large as a, as a super Jupiter uh, that close to a star where it orbits, you know, and not in the star. Yeah, but yeah, that, not in the star, the but a fraction is, of the distance. Yeah, a fraction of the distance yeah. from its parent star than, say, even even Mercury. And so you can, you know, once you've got these gigantic, vast solar system rearrangements, then then that's got to say that that all bets are off. That that everything's on the table again. I mean, look at Europa. Europa's got more water than Earth does. You just, you know, as a, as a Jupiter moves towards the sun or as, as, you know, as these planets interact with each other and they kick out a, a, a world, you could imagine one of these colliding with, with Earth in the ancient history and providing all the water in, in one go. So all bets are off. Well, we all bets are off currently, but there is the possibility of saying, OK, so when we have a more realistic sample from 67 PCG, oh, hey, it, it like Hartley 2 does actually match the planet Earth. We need that second, third, fourth, fifth measurement as the comet gets more active. Uh, right now, we know that even just one of these high deuterium ratio objects hitting the earth would have thrown off our ratios so 
because it's so easy to pollute the amount of water we have with just one comet, um, yeah, all bets are off the table, but at the same time, we can also say some theories are off the table. Yep. So if you had to make a guess right now, based on sort of what you've synthesized from your uh, reading, yes. where do you, where, what do you feel is the most likely theory of where the Earth's water came from? My gut is telling me that when we get more data from 67P CG, uh, we're likely to see a different uh, ratio of deuterium and hydrogen. Um, and we'll find that a combination of Kuiper belt and asteroids can account for the water. But that's my gut. Mm -hmm. My gut is not data. My gut occasionally believes in fairy tales. Yeah. Um, so so I, my brain is saying more data, more data, more data, more data. Yes. And until we have more data, opinions are not anything other than, well, fairy tales. Uh, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info@astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+ every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.